0: Welcome to the Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm Philip Hollingsworth. In this episode, I speak with Assistant Professor of African, African African-American, and Diaspora Studies, Ron Williams. In our conversation, Professor Williams discusses his latest book project, An Institutional History of the U.S.-based foreign policy organization TransAfrica. Thanks for uh, joining me today to talk about your work and, and what you do at, in the uh, AAAD department at UNC. To start off, can you just give a general overview of your uh, research interests and what you study and do at UNC as a professor?
1: Yeah, um, sure. So I came here um, in 2013. Um, as a result of a search that the department was doing in contemporary African-American politics. So my um, background, um, you know, I, I did a B.A. and M.A. in political science, um, and then I have a Ph.D. in African-American studies, um, and I ended up sort of be- doing more work involving the historical method in grad in in the Ph.D. program, uh, so I didn't have like a breakup with political science, but it was more of you know that's how I um, ended up pursuing, doing my doctoral studies, and and I think you know there was always a historian in me. I just done the political science path because uh, that was what I had always done, and that was what I knew. And so I, um, and so I came here. And so I teach courses in African American politics. Uh, so the two courses are African American politics, which is a survey, and then the uh, other course is race and public policy, which are both cross-listed with political science. And I, um, so kind of like half of my teaching life, I'm a political scientist, and then. Uh, half of my teaching life, I'm a historian because I teach Introduction to African-American and Diaspora Studies, which covers the history of the diaspora in the Americas until 1899. And then uh, when at least through the abolition of, of um, you know, the full abolition of slavery. Um, and then I teach uh, African-American history since 1865. And so, and so that half of my life, I'm a historian. And my research kind of brings both of those together. Sort of looking at African American political history broadly, um, but in that, and that and that's my peer group uh, in the profession, and the um, and my research looks at African Americans and U.S. foreign relations. So, um, sort of brings together African American history, African American politics, and the histories of American foreign relations, uh, and it crystallizes around a project that you heard me talk about, um, you know, which is a institutional history of uh, the African-American foreign policy lobbying organization TransAfrica that was founded in 1977 and dissolves in 2014. And it, you know, so that, those are the, it's years, but it really grew out of the um, era of decolonization, uh, you know, marked by, um, you know, its commencement beginning with Ghana in 57. And, you know, although some discourses would say the the decolonization of Africa, you know, was more or less complete by the end of the, um, by the middle of the 70s, um, I think sort of that's conventional wisdom. But, you know, my work, you know, kind of joined scholars who show how decolonization, you know, really began with Ghana i 57 and picked up with the independence of um, Anglophone and Francophone Africa throughout much of the 1960s, but was really not complete until the um, independence of South Africa in 1990. Uh, subsequently, the election of Nelson Mandela as president of the Republic of South Africa in 1994, when they held the first democratic elections. Uh, and so my, study looks at the efforts of African-Americans to influence U.S. foreign policy towards Africa and the Caribbean um, during this period, as told through the story of the rise and fall of trans-Africa, and at the same time noting that trans-Africa's story does not end in 94 when Nelson Mandela becomes president of South Africa, but because it was a never intended to be a single-issue organization The story goes for another 20 years, um, and you really get to see, uh, you know, over the arc of the project, the organizations rise, its zenith um, in the 1980s and into the 90s, and eventually it's decline. And you, you know, I I sort of consider the domestic factors that contributed to that, as well as the international, you know, factors that precipitated. It's, um, you know, the organization's uh, decline. Um, you get to see the ways in which the, the world was changing in the, um, in the 19, you know, really 1970s. 1977, it's founded, although, um, you know, although, although organizations, you can point to a sort of formation date by documents, really, you know, they are coming together before they're actually founded. And so, although the organization's origins are difficult to, the or, or, origins of any institution are difficult to pinpoint with any kind of accuracy, um, the, you know, I situate TransAfrica's development in the early 19, uh, in the early 1970s, late 1960s, like this idea of a black foreign policy lobby and the idea that black folks should be working to, um, you know, influence the policies of their government in the United States uh, comes together in the you know um, it, it was it was prevalent really throughout the 60s, um, but it really crystallized in the 1970s because by the end of the 60s, despite significant conversations among civil rights leaders. Um, and short-lived organizations like the American Negro Leadership Conference on Africa, uh, Malcolm X's very brief organization, the Organization of Afro-American Unity, which really died with him, yeah. um, and the NAACP having an interest in Africa. Uh, you know, you didn't, you didn't, and, and, and several other organizations, you know, too. I mean, it was very much a part of the civil rights discourse, but in terms of Crystallizing into a, a sort of organizational anchor. That didn't happen. And so by the end of the 60s, there's this question of, well, black folks still need to work to influence U.S. foreign policy towards Africa. And what does that look like? How do black folks, um, you know, aid in the liberation of, you know, what was now Southern Africa was the major kind of area that black folks in the U.S. began, began to hone their energies on. And there are a variety of reasons for that, uh, you know, including kind of an inability to fully understand the complicated nature of the politics of, um, you know, in the black world, right? You know, you had a uh, changing, um, you know, nature of um, life, political life in post-colonial Africa. Uh, so, and then did also the capacity issues as well. Uh, but a lot of folks came to crystallize uh, their, their commitment and involvement in this around Southern Africa in the uh, early 1970s. But there was still no organizational anchor, and there was this. Um, and then so and so there's there's a series of attempts to start organizations and some of them were short lived. Um, the African Liberation Support Committee, um, and then yeah, that's like 72, 70, 72 to seventy five, and then the Black Forum on Foreign Policy, seventy five to like seventy seven. And then, you know, with the Soweto massacre in um nineteen 19- 76. And then the inability of the Ford administration to really get a handle on Rhodesia, a uh, black elite start to come together again and say, okay, we need to have an organizational anchor at what they say, an institutional mechanism, if you will. And they start to come together and that eventually precipitates Trans-Africa's formation in 1977.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, thank you for that. And you mentioned some of the things that led to its kind of fall or it, it, and what what kind of what were some of the factors that led to that was it just like Well issues?
1: I think before we get to that like we really yeah. have to get to the story right yeah, um yeah. Go you ahead. know I don't I don't want to talk about it cuz really what I've kind of showed you was its origins <laughs> yeah, um right. what I what I've you know described here and the um that um you know really going to and then I want to touch back a little bit on what I talked about how black folks in the US trying to figure out ways to aid in the liberation struggles and in Africa, because, you know, it, it has to be reflected in all conversations about the relationships between African um, and African-American leaders, right, that that their liberation struggles as they took place in Africa in the 1960s and in the, into the 70s, um, you know, and those in the U.S., they inspired each other. And it wasn't that, you know, one was, um, you know, helping the other per se. It wasn't a situation where black Americans were aiding, aiding, aiding. You know, they they were – folks were in in increased conversation um, with one another. Um, They were um, looking for ways to uh, work together and to support each other's struggles from across, um, you know, the pond, if you will, of the Atlantic. Um, But I think it's important to note that they were – not so much reciprocal relationships but they certainly inspired each other but i want to get to before we could talk about transafrica's decline i think we need to talk about its remarkable rise and actually even before that i want to talk about yeah I'll talk about its remarkable rise and can weave in you know what i was going to say here is that transafrica um you know the working title of the book is uh, black embassy transafrica and the struggle for foreign policy justice and foreign policy justice is not a term that I came up with, um, but it's actually a term that um, the late political scientist Ron Walters um, uh, came up with in a essay that he wrote, I think, in 2002 or 2003. Um, Julianne Malveaux and Regina Green uh, co-edited a book um, called The Paradox of Loyalty, African-Americans in the War on Terror. And he talks about, um, you know, uh, this concept of foreign policy justice and Ron Walters matters because he was um I think um there are a couple there's a book that Robert Smith at San Francisco State he's emeritus there he published a few years ago uh I think I don't know if it's solely authored or co-authored but it's a biography of of Ron Walters um and um there's another um uh edited collection that he did I believe with Cedric R- Johnson and who's at University of Illinois at Chicago, and maybe somebody else. Um, It's an edited collection um, called What's This Got to Do with the Liberation of Black People? Uh, And it's essays, you know, about uh, Ron Walters. um, And there's some that he had wrote that he had not published, or others maybe they reprinted in there. And Ron Walters matters to this because he is really, uh, I think in one of those books, they describe him as the Du Bois, uh, the W.E.B. Du Bois of our generation. He is, you know, he was uh, Ron Walters. I think is born in 1938, dies in um, 2011, I believe, or 10, 2010. Um, And he was uh, active in the student sit-in movement, um, in in, you know, actually in Wichita, Kansas. You know, where where most people don't really think of the student sit-in movement, but he was, you know, active there. Goes on to. I think he went to Fisk, and then he went and did a Ph.D. at American University and was really one of the forerunners in black studies. But he's a political scientist, and he studied, um, you know, all areas of black politics, uh, you know, domestic policy, foreign policy. And he was a foreign policy advisor to the Jesse Jackson campaigns, I believe, in 84 and 88. But even before then, Dr. Walters worked as a, um, he was on the, he had moved from, um, Boston to where he was on the faculty at Brandeis. He comes to D.C. to be on the faculty and chair the political science department at Howard. And there he becomes a policy advisor to Charles Diggs. And Charles Diggs was the congressman from Michigan who chaired the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Africa. And in many ways, TransAfrica's origins are Trace to his office, uh, cause what I talked about earlier was the conceptual origins, but the practical origins really, uh, are such that TransAfrica's, you know, uh, rises out of Charles Diggs's uh, office. And Ron Walters was one of the co-founders of TransAfrica. And, you know, not only was he a scholar or a theoretician, if you will, but he was involved in the practical work of it. Uh, and so he had been involved in, um, you know, really in every area of black politics, um, as a non-elected official, right, as a, as a scholar and a policy wonk, um, you know, f- from 19, you know, for the greater part of, you know, almost 40 something years and so he comes up with this term foreign policy justice and you know with the idea which is the idea that it shouldn't just be about justice in domestic policy but it should also be about foreign policy and our foreign policy should reflect our proclaimed values and our commitments to, uh, you know, to, to racial justice. So he talks about, you know, uh, in a different way, he puts it as racial justice in foreign affairs, because the truth as, as I see it is, and I'm sure he would agree because we've, you know, we had conversations and did interviews for this project uh, and a couple years before he passed away. Uh, and in fact, I have an interview of him from like a month before, uh, three weeks before he uh, he passed away, um, and you know, we, but we talked about how um, uh, you know this this notion of, of of foreign policy justice and how you know it's been a key strand in black politics, um, you know, really you know throughout um, certainly well certainly gaining momentum uh, in the six picking up in the 60s and then gaining uh, you know real momentum in the 1970s leading up to the uh, formation of TransAfrica. And so TransAfrica's work is founded in this notion of uh, commitment to foreign policy justice, which is a type of strand of Pan-Africanism, is, um, you know, focused on influencing the policies of the state. And so that's that. I wanted to mention that because I, 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 as I, you know, talk more about the project uh, as it comes together and when it's published, you know, I want to make sure to give appropriate credit to Dr. Walters um, because, I mean, he is literally one of the greatest of all times uh, in terms of the depth and breadth of his activism and his scholarly contributions. But again, before we get to talking about TransAfrica's, uh, you know, demise, we need to deal with its remarkable, remarkable rise. Uh, so TransAfrica's founding executive director is a gentleman by the name of Randall Robinson. Um, and Randall Robinson uh, is born in 1941. Uh, he's still very much alive. Um, he lives in St. Kitts. Randall comes of age in the, you know, in the American South. Uh, he's born in Richmond, uh, you know, in to a poor family. His parents were teachers and he, um, he goes to goes to a historically black college in, in Virginia, the same one that his parents went to. He drops out for uh, a, a stint and goes to the Army, comes back and finishes, and then goes to Harvard Law School um, and was involved in the student divestment movement um, at Harvard, uh, mm-hmm. and him and uh, his um, – Wife at the time, Brenda Randolph Robinson, um, they were, so this is his former wife uh, and a gentleman South African exile named Chris and in T E T A um, is how you spell that. Um, they were um, uh, involved with starting a couple organizations in the Boston area. Uh, you know, Randall had graduated well, when he was a student, he started one. Then when he graduated, they started another one. Uh, he, he remained in the area. And so he, he, um, they start what's called the um, Southern Africa Relief Fund, and this is housed out of the Black Law Students Association office at, at Harvard, uh, and they're raising money to contribute to the to, – to send to the um, liberation front fighting for independence in Southern Africa. You know, so they're doing that, and then, you know, the um, – then you go to 1970, he gets a Ford – he graduates in the spring of 70, then he gets a Ford um, – Ford Foundation Postdoctoral Fellowship um, to go to do research in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. And he's over there for six months. Uh, They come back early, uh, but they come back and get there in fall. They come back in December, December, January 1970, 71. And, you know, one of the things that he discovers out while he's there is that the best way that he can help Africa, because that's this period where there's a lot of young black, you know, folks who were like, how do we help Africa? How do we help Africa? And one of the best ways to go about doing that is to build a movement in the United States uh, to help to challenge U.S. foreign policy that um, has continually found itself on the side of the oppressive minority regimes in southern Africa. And this is the the, the geopolitics of the Cold War, right? You know, that, that anything African is associated with communism. Uh, and so we need, we as the United States need to be anti-communist. And even if it means it being at the expense of the best interests of black world citizenries who, whose countries were largely non-aligned, um, but nonetheless uh, looked to um external sources for res- for for resources uh as they made the difficult you know as they either made the difficult um transition from you know colonies to independent republics uh keeping in mind that a lot of them found themselves in in, in debt you know like i mean the, the former french colony still paid pay they had to mortgage their debts to france right independence didn't come just because the uk and france belgium and the like wanted to you know like they just got off the good shit lollipop and said let's go and you know let, let's release our colonies no like it was, it was it was you know what was financially prudent um and um and um you know, I mean, sort of you know, fiscal considerations, um, practical considerations guided those decisions. Um, and in the European, many of the European nations, France in particular, found themselves in in financial ruin after, sec, after the Second World War. And so they released their colonial holdings as a way of um, helping to deal with that. Um, and at the same time, they still kept them within their economic sphere through debt, Um, and through, um, these, this realities of economic dependency and, and infrastructure dependency because all the roads and railways were designed, uh, for, to facilitate the extraction of goods, uh, into European markets. And so they did what, uh, you know, the Guyanese historian Walter Rodney called, you know, they underdeveloped Africa grossly. And so in even those who, earned earn or negotiated their independence in the 60s, you had vestiges of colonial rule, which included these states in southern Africa uh, that found themselves uh, fighting against settler colonialism. So we're talking about uh, the people of Zimbabwe in uh, their struggles against Eon Smith's uh, illegitimate, you know, state of Rhodesia. Uh, and the, then you're dealing with South Africa. You're dealing with, uh, you know, um, Angola, Mozambique. Guinea, Bissau, and the other Portuguese colonies in Southern Africa. Uh, And so this is – when you're in the 70s, you're in this moment. You know, South Africa's illegal occupation of, you know, the sovereign state of Namibia uh, over the um, objection of the UN, right? You know, and then even in the UN, you have the U.S. abstaining or voting no on resolutions that would call for the independence of – uh you know namibia and 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 you know
0: um uh, uh, a boring apartheid and and the like so now why was the u s why was the u s doing that was that connection to these like other European countries that had these debts? to be paid or or some
1: well the 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 u.s you know this again we're in the cold war right so there's this fear of the spread of communism we're here in the east west conflict and really what the u.s did and and its allies uh you know the nations of western europe sought to use these um african nations as um as uh pawns in the East-West conflict. I may mean, have said that already. And so, you know, it was a, um, you know, and, and many of them were, they were by and large non-aligned. And so, but they were also in deep need. And so, like, you know, with the U.S., development assistance came with expectations of political allegiance um, as opposed to development assistance for humanitarian sake. Um, and the, um, and, and so that's kind of what you, what you had there. Um, and, uh, it, it was, it was really awful, uh, because part of the, you know, what's at issue in Africa in this moment is first you have the issues of the, the lack of the, the infrastructure was not designed to facilitate the long term sustainability of African societies, which is one thing. So they're dependent on, um, you know, these Western nations. And some of them look to the Soviet Union because the Soviets, you might also help them. Uh, and so they're about how do we, how do we set up sustainable societies? How do we, you know, look out for our people? And not all of them were this way, right? I mean, there were some very, you know, corrupt African leaders. I don't want to romanticize that. Uh, you know, and in many ways, the, the, um, you had African, you know, leaders of African nations who were in, in bed if you will with the colonizers uh and so they get rich off of uh off of this um and them and their families are protected uh provided for uh you know for generations to come but they were um it was at the expense of of um, the well-being of societies as a whole you had some leaders like julius Nyerere of um And uh, Kenneth Kaunda and Kwame Nkrumah, you know, who were very principled leaders um, and committed to the well-being of their people. But you had a lot of others who were not, um, who were committed to themselves. And, you know, so you have that, right? There's another factor at play in post-colonial Africa is that the colonizers, when they left, they built the – they erected these um, boundaries, uh, these nation-state boundaries without regard for um, geograph, excuse me, for ethnic differences – Um, And so you and the result is that you have, you know, places in Africa that are, you know, you when you draw these boundaries without regard for ethnic differences, then you have people in civil war. Um, And what you do is it gives the impression that African people um, are incapable of governing themselves, thereby justifying, you know, the European and the American, you know, uh, and their sort of civilizing the further uh, continued civilizing mission. Um, so all of these things are at play, but you get to the 1970s, you're really looking at Southern Africa. Um, and in, in terms of the main issue, the other issue, there were other issues that were still there that trans Africa and other black organizations and white organizations too, like the American committee on Africa were very much invested in trying to tackle, but the sort of most protruding, you know, uh, item was uh, an issue with Southern Africa. And so you, you had, again, you can think about that in three areas. One is, uh, Portugal, right? Uh, and the, um, their colonial holdings in southern Africa. Um, and then, and then this is settler colonialism, right? So this is, you know, white majorities, um, you know, excuse me, white minorities, maybe a fraction, maybe 5% or 10% of the population, um, are denying black People, the basic rights to self-determination. Um, and so it wasn't just in South Africa. It was in the region as a whole. Um, and the, um, um, and, and but they look, all oh, they look different in each setting. So first you had, uh, what was going on in Portuguese Africa. Uh, and then, you know, the folks in Angola and Mozambique, you know, are really fought you know, like hell to liberate themselves. And they did like they by 1974, uh, they had won and their successful liberation struggles have brought about the collapse of the Portuguese empire. And that is huge. Like that was a huge, huge development that needs far more attention in our um, discourses around, um, you know, liberation struggles, right? I mean, this was black folks who brought down the Portuguese empire. Uh, and, and, and that is, that is huge. Um, but then after that you're dealing with, okay, what about what's going on in Rhodesia? Right. Um, and the, the, you know, you had black folks in Zimbabwe who were fighting for, uh, you know, their independence. Um, and that rages on through the end of the decade, uh, to the end of the seventies. Uh, and, you know, you had, Uh, The independence of Rhodesia finally in 19, the celebrations in 1980. But yeah, and then with that, what's remaining is South Africa and Namibia. Um, And, you know, we, and this is, this is apartheid. Uh, This is a, again, 90 some odd percent of the population is black. But um, you're non-white. Uh, and then, you know, you had this handful of this small fraction of white people who were controlling uh, the uh, the whole society. Apartheid was awful. It was um, grossly inhumane. It wasn't just about the denial of the right to vote and the like, but it was about, um, you know, wreaking havoc and having control over the lives of black people. And the sort of fundamental entitled one of the fundamental sort of exercises of citizenship is the right to vote Um, Mm -hmm. and beyond. And and then apartheid, you know, was engineered to perpetuate itself uh, through uh, these various uh, laws and policies that restricted movement among black people. You you had to carry an internal passport that tells you where you can and cannot go. You had unchecked violence delivered on black people by um, the South African police and defense forces. Uh, You know, the. You know, not by 1976. You had the Soweto massacre, where you know so upwards of maybe 10,000—I forget the exact number—10,000 children marched in the streets and were shot at by uh, by South African police for peacefully demonstrating. They were they were protesting the imposition of Afrikaans as the language of instruction in South Africa's public schools. And what happens here is you have the advent of the, the TV and the more widespread availability of the print media. That puts this on display in, uh, in a certain way, uh, that makes it difficult to, uh, to ignore. Uh, and this inspires uh, anti-apartheid activists around the world, um, including and in particular the United States to really rise up and to help, uh, the South Africans in their efforts to liberate themselves. Um, so you had anti-apartheid activism spring up in the in the U.S. in the late 70s and early 80s, in the Nordic countries, um, in in the U.K., um, Japan, all over the world. And this was really the moment where TransAfrica becomes most significant uh, because it plays a role in helping to – you know bring african americans into the fold in a systematic way black folks have been organizing around and concerned about apartheid for many years but it had not uh, crystallized into a movement really until the early 1980s um and so randall robinson is head of transafrica and this is the organization that is um Whose work becomes, you know, as a foreign policy lobby broadly, really, his work starts to crystallize around, um, you know, Southern Africa, and then by the, by, with the collapse of Rhodesia, uh, it become it crystallized around South Africa and Namibia in the foreground, although it was working on other things in the background. In TransAfrica, um, you know, comes out of the. The Congressional Black Caucus holds a leadership conference on Africa in the spring of, in the fall of 76. Um, and, you know, like we need to uh, organize black folks around, uh, you know, around foreign policy um, towards Africa. And really, this is a moment where, you know, when you say, we say that, that the Congressional Black Caucus organized this and they did, but really, this was actually a bunch of congressional staffers who were driving the work of their members. Uh, these are things that their members cared about, no doubt, but, you know, they were actually doing the work. And one of those congressional staffers was Randall Robinson. He was uh, chief, he was administrative assistant, which is modern day chief of staff to Charles Diggs. And, um, it was him, Ron Walters, who was uh, at Howard, but an advisor. Um, this guy, Willard Johnson, who is, uh, at MIT, but an advisor. Um, and then, um, and James Turner at Cornell University, uh, and uh, Herschel Chalinor, who um, was um, who worked for Charles Diggs. Uh, she was staff director to the House Subcommittee on Africa, uh, and a woman named Goler Butcher, who had worked for Diggs previously um, and was still active in the D.C. area. So these are kind of the real architects, if you will, of TransAfrica's um, of Trans Africa's, um TransAfrica as the organization. Um, so, again, the first thing they become involved in is – and to turn, turning back to the point of this, about their rise, the first thing they become involved in is an effort to pressure the Carter administration to um, maintain sanctions on Rhodesia until such time as they gave a clear indication that they would hold democratic elections. Um, and so uh, – and they were – and I think they really cut their teeth on that. You know, and, and that was their early success that really put them on the map in D.C. Um, and their work on South Africa benefited from from those early successes.
0: I had a quick question because you said you mentioned like they had this early success during the Carter administration, and then I guess a few years after that, you said they they kind of you know they had this explosion of success and influence. How did that work during Reagan, who? I would imagine would be maybe uh, – it might – that that administration might have clashed with the uh, goals of TransAfrica.
1: Yes, yeah, so um, the – fast forward 1980. So what happens is in 1980, people – again, people become to know, at least in D.C., and elsewhere in the nation too becomes to know about TransAfrica through its work in the Carter administration. Um, this is a chapter I'm revising now, chapter four, um, where I'm talking about how you know TransAfrica becomes known in this period. Randall Robinson becomes known. Um, and in the beginning of nineteen eighty one, you know everybody was who cared about justice in the world were stunned that Reagan won. And so, the beginning of 1980, spring of 81 rather, um, Randall um, is at home uh, at his house in Silver Spring, and an official from somebody calls and they say, um, you know, I have some documents. You know, I'm from the Department of State, I have some documents, you know, to leak to you uh, regarding the Reagan administration's plan to um, open a new chapter in relations with South Africa. Um, and and, the, and so they agree that the person will meet, come by, you know, Randall's house, uh, you know, and they do. And it's 7 o'clock, I think, the next day. Um, he looks outside. There's no car in the driveway, but the person is there. Um you know, really sort of, you know, encrypted kind of way of transmitting, you know, uh, documents. And a person comes inside and, you know, he, he or she, uh, um, uh, you know, puts everything on the table, gives it, gives, you know, um, Randall all the documents. And, um, you know, he said, I can't, my name can't come into this. Um, that's why I say he or she because, um, you know, Randall to date has not revealed who this person, you know, um, was. Um, and so, and so Randall leaks these to the press, uh, and, um, you know, and then that sort of puts them on the map again. And really what happens between 81 and 84 is there's this, this is a period for trans Africa where they're trying to organize around apartheid, trying to organize around, um, you know, these other foreign policy issues, uh, trying also to, um build national adapt national network of chapters around the country um and you know there's a point in which and really by the end of the 80 by the end of the first Reagan administration there was little, despite all their agitating trans-Africa in its own right and in partnership with many of the other anti-apartheid organizations because there were there were a number of them working on this you know um Uh, Randall describes it well. He says, you know, I would soon come to learn that the talk about the fight against apartheid was the fight against apartheid. Um, And folks were disappointed even more that Reagan won reelection. So that's end of 84. And then what happens is the um, you know, when you get into 19, you know, uh, that fall, um, you know, folks have been talking about civil disobedience for quite some time. Uh, and, um you know, and, and, and they were desperate, right? You know, like, like Reagan won. How do, how do we bring about change in this moment? And so Randall has a series of meetings with people, um, that lead up to, um, a protest at the South African embassy. Uh, the day before Thanksgiving, 1984, he goes into the embassy along with Mary Frances Berry, who was, um, Chairman, chairwoman of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, Eleanor Holmes Norton, who was on the faculty at Georgetown Law Center, but had chaired the – I think she chaired the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, um, and then Walter Fauntroy, who represented D.C. in Congress. So they go into this – they have this meeting with Bernardus Forey, who is the South African ambassador to the United States, and he they go in uh, into the embassy to meet with him, and they stage a uh, protest. They say, we refuse to leave. Until certain demands are met, and among those were the immediate um re- the, the the um release of um, all South Africa's political prisoners, including Nelson Mandela uh, Walter Sisulu, Govan, and and thirteen other labor leaders who have re- been recently imprisoned without charge and then they say uh, they also wanted a commitment to uh, to the immediate end of apartheid uh with the timeline for its dismantling, and they knew they weren 't going to get these um, demands met um but they sat there and uh, there's a point in the meeting where Eleanor Holmes Norton gets up and goes out she excuses herself from the embassy and she goes outside and is talking to the press with a swarm of um uh You know, a throng of a gaggle of, of, um, protesters, you know, standing there. Uh, and, um, you know, these, these are protesters organized by this DC based organization called the Southern Africa Support Project. Um, and they brought together, you know, grassroots, uh, activism. This is an organization predominantly led by black women. They, uh, they got protesters out there, um, this woman, Cecily Counts, who was on the staff of TransAfrica, she's standing out there holding a sign, you know, and they're all – she's leading the protesters. They're all yelling, freedom, yes, apartheid, no, uh, you know, and other slogans they're chanting. And, and Eleanor Holmes Norton basically tells the press, she's like, you know, we, we're here because we had no choice uh you know, she's like if we if we thought that if we thought that there was a government in pretoria uh who would be willing to use this pressure even diplomatically on this issue um we wouldn't be here tonight uh so they and so they're they were ho- they're thinking when they got in there was they're hoping that the ambassador would order them arrested uh for the three that were remaining in there and he did so they he ordered them arrested they were all spent the night in jail they um uh, you know, Walter Fontoy waived congressional immunity. They all refused to post bail. They wanted to stay the night to make a statement. The next day they um hold a meeting at they get out, they're released, they hold a meeting at Randall's house in DC. And uh and then the next and then the day after Thanksgiving they have a press conference at on Capitol Hill, one of the office buildings, uh the Rayburn House office building, and they announce the formation of the Free South Africa
0: movement. And
1: the Free South Africa movement is really what put TransAfrica africa on the map. Um, its goals were sweeping but simple. They wanted to um, bring it into apartheid. Uh, they wanted to literally free South Africa. Uh, and they would do that by, again, demanding that the political prisoners be released. And the tangible or concrete demand of policymakers in the U.S. would be the imposition of sanctions on South Africa by the government of the United States the protest strategy would be to stage demonstrations at the embassy in Washington daily where people would get arrested and so over the course of a year so they and they held those and then they would the, the demonstrations would take place at consular offices around the country and over the course of a year you know between November 1984 and November 1985 November 27 to 26 of the following year there was only one day … that a person was not arrested at the embassy, but even that day there was a protest. Then the the battle raged on for another year when they were, they were involved in a campaign to push sanctions legislation through Congress, uh, and the result was the enactment in October of 1986 of the Comprehensive Anti-Apartheid Act of 1986 that became law um, upon a congressional override of a veto by Reagan. I think it's probably only the second time in American history, well, in the 20th century, that a veto was overridden on a matter of foreign policy. Um, and so this was a huge triumph for foreign policy justice. It was a huge triumph for African American foreign policy activism. Um, and TransAfrica was, uh, you know, at, was
0: at the center of that. I just had a couple more questions, if that's all right. You're obviously working on this comprehensive history of this organization. It has so many interlocking and weaving parts and several countries involved and everything and, and individuals. But what, uh, with this particular book project, how do you envision this shaping your field of study or shaping society in some way? Or, or you know, what impact do you hope to have with this history project?
1: you know i've i've covered i've talked through 1986 um and the story goes on another 28 years and i'm hoping that in terms of content right so i think there's content and there's um, method and i think that i'm hope cuz you know it's not just about the organization but it's about the times right you think about when you read biography it's someone's life and times and so I think about that, um and how you, know, you you really do learn both. And so there's that. And so I think I want people to know learn Trans Africa's story. I think it's a rich story, I think it's a complex story. Um, you know, and institutional histories are hard to do, which is why it's 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 not common for I mean people don't take them on because it's 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 a lot to do and honestly I when I started out on this project I could not have imagined this you know ballooning into a 19 18 19 potentially 20 chapter book depending on how I break it up and so I'm hoping people will learn through TransAfrica's story uh, to your question uh, it, about th- that there was this struggle in the United States in recent history that black folks were a central part of, um, that became a that, that was supported by a wide range of people who were not black, that was successful in helping to realize foreign policy justice, that South Africa was a major part of that, but there was this broader commitment to it that this organization evinced. I think that, and I think it's, I think it's a rich story that cut, that really looks at, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and into the 2010s. I hope that the readers will come to see the value in that story, the ways in which, uh, you know, black folks and, and supporters, right, you know, cause it, this, because Free South Africa became a – think, you know, Um, Randall's um, wife, uh, Hazel Ross Robinson, who's very much, um, you know, this is the woman he married in 1987, was very much, you know, one of his partners in this work. And, you know, she said this to me either in person or it was either over the phone or in email. She's like, you have to remember that Free South Africa was like an emotional wave that swept the country. So many people were invested in. I mean, you had students on college campuses, including our own. You know, you ask people who were students in the 80s, Claude Clegg, you know, Professor Claude Clegg in my department will tell you about being a student in the 80s and remembering and being a part of the student anti-apartheid demonstrations. And you, and all those things are touched on in this story and how these folks were part of this significant moment. Uh, so I, I'm hoping that people get to see that. I also want, you know, people to see the, the, you know, because I think you can learn about for people think about contemporary social reform movements. Um, you know, you also get to see the ways in which that challenge to Reagan was huge, right? And if you want to challenge, you know, I mean, I don't know what people's political proclivities are. I'm anti-Trump, and so if you want to challenge Trump, yeah, you know, you want to you should look at how folks challenge Reagan. Mm-hmm. And what they did is they were out there every day. I mean, these people were like you know, policymakers like, whoa, they weren't going anywhere. I mean, it's it is no small feat that this organization was at the forefront of this movement and black folks were at the forefront of this movement that overturned a foreign policy veto by Reagan. Remember, you know, the Republicans, Reagan had won reelection with forty nine states. Right. Right. I mean, so this was huge. This was a huge moment. Um, the Republicans had taken the Senate for the first time, um, you know, in quite some time. I forget the, and then it switched back Democratic. Um, you even had, uh, there's this part where I talk about, uh, how, you know, the people that TransAfrica and Randall Robinson worked with in, in sort of the lobbying effort. And I talked about, you know, um, uh, Lowell Weicker, a senator from Connecticut, Nancy Kassebaum of, uh, Kansas, uh, and, you know, Ted Kennedy of, of Massachusetts. And I said, and Mitch McConnell, and then I say in parentheses, you read that correctly, Mitch McConnell, <laughs> yeah. right? Oh, wow. um, and, and you got these folks to break ranks with Reagan, like there's – and, 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 and there's this speech that Mitch McConnell gives on the floor of the Senate. He's like, you know, I stand with my president on all these things, but I'm breaking from him on this matter. I mean that was huge because he was a, he was a junior senator. He was just seated. And so, and so, you know, you get to see these complex dynamics around this issue. Um, but I also, you know, want to. I hope readers, you know, and students of the subject get a chance to see that there was a movement in the 1980s. There was a movement in the 1980s. There was you know uh we we think about uh a lot of you know think about old the the good old days right you know the 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 good sixties the bad sixties, you go into the seventies, you know civil rights black power, and the lines between those are blurred, but there was a movement in the nineteen eighties and anti apartheid became the black civil rights issue and the American civil rights issue in the nineteen eighties because it was about human rights, it was about foreign policy justice. But I hope readers also come away with an appreciation for the ways in which the world has changed and the world really changed between the 80s and the 90s. And that's the part I'm writing about next. I should be hopefully into the part where Nelson Mandela is released and, you know, does his tour of the United States. I supposed to have been there six months ago, but we had a pandemic that we're still in. So those are some of the things that I hope people come to come away with from it. I think also. I hope methodologically that the book invites a conversation about, you know, through what I do well and what I don't do so well, about how we write about recent history and um the ethics of it uh and you know sort of the methodological considerations of it. Yeah. So those are some things.
0: Well, thank you very much. It's it it's a really fascinating project and I think it's it's amazing how expansive it is and just the you can you can just tell like <laughs> The, uh, despite previous conversations, the amount of work that's been put into it and the amount of um, research that's needed to be done. So I, I really look forward to seeing it, and I'm sure you are too, to seeing the final product. <laughs>
1: I look forward to it as well.
0: All right. Well, Ron, thank you very much for the time, and I really enjoyed hearing about your work. Take it easy, Philip. Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.